0: both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. For this episode of the podcast... I am pleased to introduce Richard Lake. Richard is the founder of Roadside Development Company. Roadside is a retail mixed-use development firm headquartered in Washington, D.C. Richard and his company have developed three major projects in the city in Washington, D.C. Two are completed, which is a city line at Tenley, which is a mixed-use residential retail building. It was a former Sears store. The second one was City Market at O, which is on the intersection of 9th and O Street Northwest near the Convention Center, which was a former ancient 19th century market that was converted into mixed-use. It's award-winning. And his third project, major project in the city is City Ridge, which is under construction currently, which is the former Fannie Mae headquarters. This is what Richard's most famous for, but he started out in the restaurant business with his father. His father ran the Zebra Room, which was a famous place that closed in the early 1990s, but was an institution in the late 20th century in Washington. So he has a, his retail background is from that. And then he went into retail brokerage after college, then started his development firm. So without further ado, here is Richard Lake. Hi, Richard. Welcome to the podcast today. I'm looking forward to talking to you further So, could you tell me a little bit about uh, your current position and your role at Roadside Development? Certainly. Thank you, John, for for coming in and coming to talk to me, especially on a kind of a dreary day.
1: Appreciate it. So, I'm currently the majority owner of Roadside Development. Roadside Development is a um, partnership that started about 20 years ago between uh, two of my partners, Armin Spikel and Todd Weiss, myself. and. It kind of started as an outreach of our leasing business. I ran a, uh, a large retail leasing company. and We found that we had clients who were trying to unlock some of the value of the real estate. And Todd Weiss was an old client of ours. So Arm and I brought Todd in and we formed a development company. And it's kind of taking, taking its own shape. What's your role? Generally, kind of like acting. We don't really have titles, but like acting president or CEO. Just kind of, I'm the big boot in the office, kicking people through to projects to do projects and organize the team. I spend most of my time looking at and trying to come up with a vision for a place and then organize a team around
0: that. How large is the company now as far as personnel?
1: So we're up to 20 people now. Probably going to add a few more people by the end of next year. Don't want to really get too much bigger than that. We kind of like to see ourselves as small footprint doing large, larger projects. You know, we want to have enough in-house expertise, like construction management, accounting, legal, transaction-oriented leasing. So we're trying to try to stay relatively lean but uh,
0: pretty nimble. I'll come back to this later and go into more details about your company. Sure. But uh, I thought we'd uh, kind of shift gears a little bit and go back to your personal background, mm-hmm. where you were born, where you grew up what your uh, educational situation was and uh, how you got into the real estate business. Sure, bit. sure. So I'm I'm the youngest
1: of four boys, and I was born here in Washington, D.C., at Washington Hospital Center. Grew up in first part of my life in Silver Spring in Hillendale, Maryland, off of uh, New Hampshire Avenue. And then later in life, before I went to junior high school, my parents moved to Great Falls. So then I... I ended up going to Churchill High School, and then I went to Boston University for my undergrad studies and studied actually real estate finance. That's kind of how I got into real estate. Uh, While I was in Boston, I worked for a a bond company. I was actually on my way to Wall Street to become a bond trader. And my idea was I was going to try to make enough money, then to come down back to D.C. and try to develop. I always thought it was really intriguing. Then you get a chance to make a difference. You can change the landscape or the of the place that you're involved in. So I've always thought that was pretty cool. I had a professor at BU in the school of management that, that was a developer and he was teaching class. So he would have us go out and look at his properties. And I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world to be able to to, to basically inform change. And so that's been my passion. On the retail side, I really got into retail because my fa- whole family was in retail. My, my grandparents owned little yeah, grocery talk stores. About that. It's a kind of an interesting tie-in to uh, the O Street Market and some other things, but my, my grandparents had little corner grocery stores in Shaw. My father owned a number of restaurants, but probably the most well-known was the Zebra Room in Wisconsin oh, Avenue sure. in Macomb. Yes. Uh, yeah, my father was uh, an icon <laughs> of his own right. I mean, he knew everybody in the city and everybody knew him. So Hal was this incredible personality and uh, he knew you, he knew your kids, knew when your kids were misbehaving... Did you hang out there as a kid? We all did. I think my first job was washing dishes when I was five or six. They stacked some crates for me, and I'd actually wash dishes. And all my brothers and I and my cousins and my uncles, we all worked there. It was was just a wonderful place to be. And my father had this philosophy that no job was too dirty for his kids to do. And he had a big, both my parents, I think, had a big influence on us that, you know, it's about thinking about others, you know, think beyond yourself. So that was just really his attitude. Is he,
0: is he a native Washingtonian as well? No.
1: Both my parents were from Brooklyn, New York. Really? He went okay. to Boys High, and uh, uh-huh. uh, they moved down. My father did a stint in World War II, and then after the war, my mother and him moved to D.C., and they were young. I think they were 20 and 18. Why restaurant? Right why bar? Why, why that thing? One of his first jobs, he worked for the House of Wine, um, and he was a wine salesman. Oh, really? And uh, Interesting. And so, you know, he just, if he got, if you knew my dad, he was, it was just, just this great person, personality. So he knew a lot of the industries, all the restaurants, Max Berg, which is a friend of his, Max is an old real estate developer, had an idea of them buying a restaurant together and they bought it together. And then my father ultimately bought Max out of the room, and then that kind of launched him into a series of different ventures before social media before before emails and us uh, you know this this whole marketing thing we're experiencing with Amazon and Google and everything else my father when he opened the restaurant it wasn't doing so well so he wanted to do a direct mail yeah. so he went to the pharmacist at people's drug store which is now CVS up the street and he bought the prescription list of all the people who got their their prescriptions at people's oh drugstore, God, he great. figured they were in the neighborhood, and he sent out all these mailers about you know Pizza Holiday, which was half price pizza Tuesday Thursday nights, or Spaghetti Day, which was Wednesday. And He came up with this whole this whole campaign and marketing way way ahead of his time, and lo and behold, it was uh, incredible. Took off incredibly well, and and uh, he owned it for thirty five years. The only thing that I
0: remember about the Zebra, I, I moved here in the mid '80s, and I read historically that Carl Albert, who was Speaker of the House, used yeah. to come there. Was it every day or very frequently you know, yeah. at the time? Both Carl and his
1: uh, his wife, and, and again, I'm, I'm have to say I'm too young to remember, but my father barred them from the restaurant really? because they were they were alcoholics, and and my father would literally kick them out. And they would show, I remember one time they showed up in disguises thinking that they could get <laughs> the away. Speaker of the House. Yeah, speaker of the House. And my, <laughs> national news, I think. And, my, and, and, and and the restaurant was always frequented by Secret Service and the FBI. I'll tell you an interesting story. <laughs> when Reagan was president, his stepson or son was in the Joffrey Ballet so we went to, my father got us tickets. We went to the Kennedy Center to see uh-huh. the, the Joffrey Ballet. And since Reagan was coming to the Joffrey, we had to go through security. And there's this whole line of Secret Service agents. And as we're going through security and walking through, they're all going, hi, how, hi, how, how, I mean, it's like literally 20 of them said hello to my father because um, <laughs> And so you, you never know who was there. J.W. Marriott used to come with his family. I waited on them. John Anderson ran his presidential campaign out of the Zebra Really, right. the Kennedys were there. You would have a Supreme Court justice next to next to a, just another family, and my mm-hmm. father would say, "Oh, can you guys move over and share this table so I can make another room for two?
0: And this, my guess this is way. your father knew things that he didn't, that other people would like to have known, but he didn't share. So he was a confident.
1: Person. Yeah, he was a confident. He was. Um, I remember Mayor Barry used to come to him and talk to him about stuff, and uh, he was just easy to talk to. He was just a, you know, he was just a really neat guy. So it was just wonderful to see that experience. So, so retail was kind of always in my blood. You know, from shoe stores, to dry cleaners, to cleaning stores and restaurants, my family and my extended family have all been in those businesses. So to me, it made sense to get into retail real estate because I kind of understood it. A little bit better, from at least from the tenant standpoint, from the from the person who works, you know, eighteen hour days or twelve. What principles days. did you learn from your father? Well, number one principle is that um, work is is to be valued, and that everyone matters. I mean, he was he he could talk to anyone, and he could make someone feel good just by saying hello to them. And so, having that attitude that you know, there's no here. This is we're all here together and we're all trying to do something. So he treated
0: the president the same way as he would treat a janitor, right? He
1: would treat everyone
0: the same exact way. And he and his belief was
1: that he valued good work. He valued hard work. And he showed that through his, you know, through his own work ethic. And he was big about family. You know, family mattered and being there for your kids and being there for your for your for your wife. And he was incredibly supportive. And my mother in the same fashion. So they came from an old world kind of attitude, which we try to instill in our kids. And hopefully we did a good job recognizing that uh, it's about thinking beyond yourself.
0: That's great. So you went to Boston University and were inspired by a development professor. So evolve out of that, coming out of Boston BU, what what happened next?
1: I was, like I said, I was about, about to go to Wall Street and become a Trainee to learn how to become a bond trader. And then um, the market collapsed a little bit. What year was this? This is 1984, really at the end of 83. In October, there was a slight dip in the bond market. So the company I had this job with just agreed to go back to DC, do something, and then, you know, we'll call you, you know, of a year. So I thought, all right, well, I'll go back to DC. And of course, I, every time I was home, I worked at the restaurant and there was a this twinkle in my eye do I want to take over the restaurant? And I really thought hard and long about it. And I didn't think that was really what I wanted to do, even though I've been working at the restaurant forever. A friend of mine was married to a guy named Larry Siegel, who worked at Western Development, and suggested I sit down with Larry. So Larry had a couple ideas, and one of them was to go meet with a company called Smithy Brayton. And that also at the time was a
0: company called Barnes-Morris Pardo. Did you think about working at Western also?
1: No, I didn't. I didn't think it, I, I actually was offered a job from them a couple, five years later, a number of times, actually, with, with, with her Miller. Miller, met with her, met with a number of them. I didn't want to work for a big company. I mean, if I, part of my career has been kind of avoiding working for large organizations. So I met Jim Eitberg. And if right. anyone in the real estate industry had the pleasure of knowing Jim Eitberg, they're better for it. Jim was one of the greatest mentors you could have as a person. Talk about someone who saw beyond a transaction and really saw the person and the needs. And he was just great. He he unfortunately got sick and passed away way too young. Mm -hmm. But Jim gave me plenty of runway. And Armin, actually, Armin Spichel, my partner, actually hired me out of college. Really? Uh, Actually took me. A long time to get hired which was really kind of pissed off about it, to be honest with you so <laughs> uh, i didn't understand it so again a number of job offers but i chose smithy because i liked the i like jim and i like darman what know? other firms did you talk to barnes morris pardo you know, cbre at the, right. well, i wasn't cbre at that time it's called call a banker transwestern all in retail that, was really, that was really my focus. My focus was retail. And I didn't know if it was going to be in sales or if I was going to be in leasing. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because those were traditional retail companies. But I thought that, geez, I could maybe have bigger fish in a smaller pond as right. opposed to try to so it try to So was H&R fish.
0: around at that time or yeah, k H&R,
1: H&R was. K&B was. They were seen as suburban more right. Baltimore oriented right. companies. And uh, so there really wasn't a strong retail presence in, mm-hmm. in DC. i go to work for Smithy Braden, had this idea. We had this idea of creating retail. Harmon was selling shopping centers. So he was in the retail world, but his, he thought, geez, I can sell these shopping centers with them being more leased. I can make more money. So right. hence this young guy comes out of college. And so I started in, 19, in November of 1984, right out of college. And then I get to Smithy and there really wasn't a retail leasing program at all. There was one woman doing some, some small, you know, retail first floor stuff, but there was nobody out there really trying to get, get this business started. We started, lo and behold, meeting more and more people. And Todd Weiss, who's my partner, was one of my first clients. And he had a shopping center in his building and out in Loudoun County and wanted to get built. And K family was building another shopping center and hired me and then, uh, to One lawyer and another friend, Lenny and Billy, Lenny Sloan and Billy Lemmer were building another shopping center and slowly but surely I started. So you were a landlord broker. I was a landlord guy. You weren't working in tenants. At that no, point. I wasn't. But although it was interesting, I started talking to grocery stores mm-hmm. and I um, called Giant Food up and the gentleman said, look, if you want to bring deals to me, meet me at, you know, seven o'clock. you remember who that morning. was? I'm trying to remember his name, I will get it'll come back to me my recall. is not as good. It wasn't Mike Bush, was it? No, no. But it was somebody who worked for Mike. But I got to know Mike through through all that. And I get, started just driving people, being a young guy and saying, Hey, I, I wanna learn. And I remember I was looking, I met the Berman family, the old man in Berman, and sure. He said, Hey, come to my office, and he walked me through the mall, and introduced me to every store, every store manager. Which property where it was is this? it? Was the it was the Laurel Mall that he oh, built, yes, and then of he, of course, built the big uh, open air center that Federal now owns. And I got fortunate that I got to spend a lot of time. I got to know uh, Robert E. Simon pretty well because I did a number of shopping centers in Reston with David Ross at Atlantic Realty, mm-hmm. and so so you get to. You get to meet these people and you get to get inspired by them and you learn by them from them. One thing led to another and all of a sudden, before I knew it, I was, I've was i done about 20 grocery stores, transactions, and most of them are ground up deals. So, you know, it'd be the Atlantic Realty or or Toll Brothers and they'd say, hey, we have this retail play. Can you help us take it through the process, design it, you know? And so I learned, you know, early on how to get in front of community groups, how to talk to County officials, how to talk to city officials, and of course
0: the retailers and bring them along and design these projects. That gave me So it was on the job training for you. You didn't do any extra extra outside, you know, research or study or anything. No. Like that. I did, I remember my first shopping
1: center, I was showing it to a tenant and they asked me how many tonnage of H- HVAC was, and I had no idea what he was talking <laughs> about. And so I'm like, that's not gonna happen again. So I knocked on the construction trailer, and I said, do you guys mind if I sit in all your construction meetings? And they go, why? And they go, because I just want to learn everything I can about the, the physical aspect that I'm leasing. And I quickly learned you know, how many amps we were providing, how many tons per square foot we were providing, what was the light level, what was the candle, you know, foot candle level in the parking lot, and understanding you know, from meeting with so many grocery stores about, Traffic and truck traffic and com- consumer needs and, and habits and uh, and again, as I said, I'm a retailer at heart. So even though I represent landlords, I believe that you need to understand your tenant's needs. I mean, at the end of the day, without tenancy, there's no reason for us to exist. It's no income, right? <laughs> we're the we're the really the middle manager, middle guy between the consumer and the tenant. Our job is not to get in the way of that relationship of We're trying not to provide any more barriers. So, so I, I even got to spend time with Tom Miller who's really the brainchild behind Bethesda Row. Eric Rubin and my, an old partner of mine, Eric, unfortunately passed away way too young, but Eric was one of the guys we hired when we grew the retail business and he was just incredible a leasing guy. And he and I, Really started the, the, the first couple of buildings with uh, Tom Miller when he started, had this vision that retailers were going to leave the mall, which was late 80s. And
0: How many years was it before Federal came to the table with that? So I think it was probably, probably like seven years before that Federal. Years. Yeah. Really? And then
1: unfortunately, Tom had some health issues and decided he didn't want to, you know, lead the charge. So he massively decided and they took his plan and, and grew it from there. But he was a visionary, he had this vision, just like. Um, Bob Simon, you know, the founder of Rustin. Right. Incredible visionary. And didn't come from a pure, really real estate family. He, you know, his family owned Carnegie Hall. And they found their own some real estate too. But he just had this idea that people were going to live a little bit differently. Needed to live a little bit differently. And uh, he took some of the social issues that were of his time to try to, to make a difference. So it's just, you know, we were talking before we started about Ray Ritchie. And, you know, you get a chance to spend time with... People of that caliber and just hope that some of their vision and thoughtfulness and genius rubs off on them, onto you. That's been one of the pleasures of being able to do what I get to do.
0: So how long were you at Smithy then? You started there about 84 or so. So I was there
1: for 14 years. So I had this idea of creating a retail focus group because we were and KLMB and H&R and all these other guys started to right. started to kind of move into this market because this was a pretty target-rich environment. We kind of grew organically, bringing a few guys in, bringing a research department, and then um, approached this idea, that Jim Eichberg. And uh, what I did is I had a handful of guys who were not in our company that I would have dinner with them on a regular basis. And we would talk about what would this company look like? Uh with Scott Thiel and a Roger Carlson. Um, These are all other brokers. Other brokers that were in different market, different, different offices. And we were just saying, look, what can we create here? What can we, what kind of environment do we want to create here? Jim embraced the idea. So we created the Reto Group, which was a part of Smithy Brayton, which allowed us to market ourselves independently. And we did that for six years. Why did you think you needed that? Because retail was becoming really a specialized, it wasn't just the first floor of something. It was the retailers wanted to know that they were being represented by someone who truly understood retail. And you had a whole separate retail marketing and research department because that way you talk to retailers, the what they're interested in, is so different than when you would talk to an office, office or user, office user or, mm-hmm. or industrial user. So so we needed to really make the DNA of the of the organization. Purely about retail, and it had to be in our name.
0: Immediately, you needed to know that it was that we were retail, and we didn't have any hesitations. Was it that. because Smithy does other things, they oh, yeah. do office and industrial and other things, right. and you wanted to really separate yourselves as a as a retail specialty?
1: That's exactly right. Smithy was well known to being one of the leading office and industrial property right. managers and leasing companies. So many people started at Smithy Braden that uh, now. You know were icons of the marketplace. So so when you heard the name Smithy Braden, you really thought office and we wanted to kind of change the Good conversation stick. without taking anything away from what they needed to achieve. And it was a great partnership. Then Jim wanted to sell the company and he was going to sell to grow up in Ellis, And I was really not digging the idea of working for a big company. I had roadside Development was an offshoot of Smithy at the time. We started it. So, what happened is we built a, a little shopping center before we had roadside for the Aiken family on Route 50. And one of the tenants was CVS. And CVS was just starting to come out with these drive throughs. Nobody knew what they really why you have a drive through for a pharmacy. Was, the, was
0: their deal the, the driver
1: of that development? So, there was, it, it really was, they were a tenant. Uh-huh. But the relationship became, they really liked the way we handled ourselves. So we, um, they asked us if we wanted to be a preferred developer. And we said, sure. not even know what the heck that was. So we went up to socket, And we were the first preferred developer in the country for CBS. Wow. And That's we said, crazy. look, we got to come up with a name. So Armin goes, well, we built things along the road. Why don't we just call ourselves Roadside Development? <laughs> and um, it stuck. And so for we built You know, we built close to two dozen CVSs and we just in this region, just in this region. And then the leasing guys, you know, Mike Pratt, who's a big leasing, retail leasing guy, he did a ton of transactions with CVS. So it was a great uh, experiment how having development capabilities could be a multiplier to to the other parts of your business. So all the leasing fees we flowed through the company. So when Jim was making, negotiating his deal with Rub, Rub, and Ellis, we had a client at the time that we were doing all the leasing for called Madison Marquette. And Madison Marquette was owned by a company called Capital Guidance, which Capital Guidance has a base operation here in D.C., but Madison Marquette was based in Cincinnati. So I met with the CEO of Madison, a guy named John Bourne. And John said, look, I, I, we love what you guys do. We love for you, for you, for us to you to, you to bring your team here. If you're not going to stay, you know, you know, in the absorption. So we negotiated to create from the retail group, Mass Retail Group, and we made a deal with Jim that we would run all our fees for the first period of time through Smithy, so his transaction could be fully made whole, and that was part of the cost to get us. And so Madison absorbed that. Cost and we made a deal with Amir uh, Hamar, who's the CEO of Madison uh, Marquette and, and, and Capital Guidance, leader of Capital Guidance. And that lasted for about eight years mm-hmm. until we, we um, and for me, here was a great opportunity to have a, a capital rich partner who could help us, you know, source deals or, or we can help source deals and we can pursue transactions. And, you know, we thought this would be a great opportunity for us to, to, to explore their business, how we could, you know, be a, a robust leasing arm for their business. And they used it as an opportunity to bring their base of their operations from Cincinnati mm-hmm. to D.C. And so that was something that Amir wanted to do was really have a bigger presence in D.C. And we, we, we sourced a few things, and some of them worked out, some of them didn't. Um, one that did work out real well was we bought the old Heckinger building in Tenley Town, which before that was a Sears department store. We bought it because of this retail footprint. with thought 90,000 feet of on grade Wisconsin Avenue footprint times two. How can you go wrong in this? And we actually bid on 43 of the Heckagers, and we didn't win the bid, but I negotiated that we could cherry pick this one from the the pool so the bankruptcy court chose us to be the stalking horse for this particular uh, so site.
0: define what us is because i'm a little this deal was sound like it was pretty complicated transaction in madison Marquette, okay? and you had your existing development company roadside plus you your retail retail brokerage shop so mm-hmm. did you have separate entities continue oh, yeah. throughout so how how did all that work out? So explain that a little
1: bit. Well, that's probably why it's not the way it is anymore. Anyway. Um, <laughs>
0: okay, because because um, I think
1: everybody was like, okay, what hat are you wearing today? You know, uh, yeah. I think Mass Marquette saw me as a as more than just a partner. They they really I I would travel around the country, go to their their management meetings, and spend time with them. And I think they really wanted me to be part more a part of their governance. And I had a partners in the brokerage world where I had to generate income and, and run that office. And then I had partners in the development world that I had to, you know, I had some responsibilities. So it was starting to get a little frayed. So I think uh, Madison was in the process of looking at creating a fund and they were interested in me being part of that, which I really appreciated. It was a great compliment to have them want me to be part of that. I really wanted to focus on the bricks and mortar, not the not the, just purely the financial side of the world. So I made the decision not to uh, to, to you know to stay and to focus primarily on my development business. And so about I want to say twelve, thirteen years ago, we we left Madison. We you know we made a deal, and then parted really ways. But then I was focused solely on roadside. And so we on our development business and really have taken reluctantly some some assignments from certain people who were interested in us providing services beyond our, just our purely interested in our own financial interest in development. For instance, we projects coming out of the ground, we were the 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 idea behind Capital One's new headquarters of bringing in Wegmans performing arts center lining retail along the main street and creating more of a public realm. We didn't, we weren't there early enough to change really the master plan, but we kind of took the block and a block and a couple blocks and really kind of rethought about what it should be and provided consulting and leasing services to uh, to Capital One. Don't do that often, but I had a good relationship with Wegmans. They were looking for a home and uh, I wanted to- This is the Tyson's Corner site. Tyson's Corner site. And so that's how that all kind of came together. So we've done that periodically, but that's kind of our roots. How roadside became is because we had tenants and landlord, you know, landowners who said, I need someone to help me unlock the value, or I want to find a location. You know, our whole deal of giant food at City Market at O. I mean, that whole development started off with our roots as a leasing company. We were doing consulting work for the convention center. And there was this property that had a giant food and backed up to 9th Street. Mm-hmm. And the guy who owned it was underwater. He had over $7 million tax liens and unpaid loans. And he was about to lose his property. And then Giant was gonna lose their lease. So Giant contacted us, the city contacted us, and we met with them and we came up with a plan to how to save the Giant, save this guy from bankruptcy, I mean, financial absolute ruins, and we were able to shore him up and then had a long-term, a short, medium, and long-term plan. And the ultimate long-term plan was this redevelopment plan. And now we've built 640 units. We have a 182-key hotel and 90,000 feet of retail. It's been, you know, this
0: incredible, you know, success story. Let me step back. I mean, that's a. I want to get into that story a little bit sure. more, but I want to step back into the transition of traditional retail development since you were a CVS special which is pad sites typically mm-hmm. and you know maybe end caps which is typical of one of their and you obviously did grocery deals so you now understand the grocery business you know how the merchandising of a shopping center all pretty much single story mm-hmm. not doing the vertical. So talk about the evolution of your business into the vertical construction so the city market at O or I should say the Tenley Town right, piece was, was, I think, the first one. Right. But had you thought about that uh, before your relationship with Madison Marquette, doing converting? Was, it, was the market such that that was starting to really become more evident? Or was that before? Was that about that same time? It was about the same time. What I remember, specifically, when I came, when
1: we were in Troy with Madison, my number one goal was I was a grocery store guy. So I'm like, you guys do all these incredibly fancy places. It's great. But why don't we bring a Whole Foods or bring a, a right. grocery element to this? And right. There was a lot of resistance from them thinking that would make us more traditional. We're trying not to be traditional. I'm like, are you kidding me? Food is... Food is everything. Everybody eats. Everybody has to eat. But the vertical piece of it really came... We stumbled into that. What happened was when we bought the Tenley Town property, we immediately entered into a lease with Home Depot. And that deal didn't happen because uh, Home Depot couldn't figure out the two-story component. So when we had to re-look at the project, we said, okay, well, we've, you know, we're sitting on top of a metro. Mm-hmm. The zoning allows for a lot of density by right, but it's historic. So how do we unlock that? So we figured out how to actually unlock it through the structural means. And then part of it was talking to the Heckinger your guys and thinking, what what did you find physically and looking at their plans? Hired their structure engineer. How they robust the slab, and we learned a lot about the building. So we said, okay, we we could we could build on the existing structure. So once we figured out we could build on the existing structure, we started talking to the the developers who do residential multifamily, and we talked to about six of them, and they all were interested. But the challenge was none of them wanted to start when we wanted them to start, or guarantee they would start. And therefore, we didn't know how we could handle the fact we have a Best Buy and a container store. And we have, in, in our minds, the retail is the most precious piece of this. And in their minds, the residential was the most important. So, you know, who cares about where I bring my, my vertically, you know, my gravity flow utilities through, you know, who cares if, you know, how I treat the front door, right? And we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa we're retail guys, you can't just do that. and. And so I came back from actually a meeting with one of the, I won't mention, but one of the residential guys. And I said, we're going to school. And everybody goes, what do you mean we're going to school? (laughs) I said, we're going to own residential businesses." And Madison has never, never did a residential deal, never built a residential unit. They didn't know what, you know, they were like looking at me like I was a crazy man. And I just started touring and touring and touring and looking at Buildings and looking, and it was the same time. Did you think about bringing a partner in? We 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 did, but it got back to the same thing: who who's mm-hmm. leading the charge? So right, one of the deals that was like ripe in my mind was federality and Post Properties, mm-hmm. and I knew both of those guys. I knew mm-hmm. both of those organizations, and they were doing a project together in Fairfax, mm-hmm. in Pentagon Row, right? And it was a disaster because they didn't talk to each other. Post was building the resi, federal Is that a stick built. It was stick built and they there was this whole host of issues about this vertically integrated stuff. Right, and so I'm like, you gotta have a you gotta have one vision, one person, one thing. So that's how we learned, and we were fortunate that we delivered 204 units in a very robust market. And then at that time, Amir was thinking about raising a fund, so he really wanted to show a big IRR and a big, and this was an you know, enormous IRR. And so I said, "Well, well, If you want to really push the numbers, let's do condos." So we did condos. Well, who does two hundred four condos? Huh. But we huh. sold those things out like in six months. Wow. I mean, we had two thousand people on a waiting list, huh. and there was—I we had twenty-seven price increases in just the first two weeks. And I learned a ton. And again, remember, I, my my thing is I love just to absorb. Construction, constructability, I learned, you know, so many things about different, you know, that's an epicore,
0: you know, uh, construction the, the type. approvals on that deal, mm-hmm. what I read about, maybe you can elaborate a little bit more, were unbelievable. It took, you know, hundreds of meetings, I guess, with the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I mean, that Tenley Town neighborhood is one of the more difficult areas to develop in the city from what I've so elaborate on that a little bit on the well, whole process of that.
1: Our approach, you know, and, and really, I guess Armin and I kind of led the charge in the community. Our, our approach was, remember, we're retail guys. So right. these are our customers' customer. Mm-hmm. This is my tenant's customer. So right. I'm not going in there to piss you off because okay. I want you to shop here. Which, remember, okay. I'm still the most interested in is the, the retail transaction, the okay. customer. So... Our approach was really to sit and listen to them. So we said, look, we, there's so many voices here, and we organized a task force. And we said, we'll meet in our offices once a month with an, our architect, and we'll, you, each of you, I think it was like 12 groups, you appoint a task of someone who would meet with us, and in this task force, we would sit and literally go through the design. And you know, I'll give you a great example one comment came back to us. We have these ramps. That was the whole part of the Sears, these ramps that on the roof. Sure. And there's a ramp on Albemarle. And there's a ramp on River Road and a ramp on Wisconsin. And we were going to use the one off of River and the one off of Albemarle and abandon the one in Wisconsin. So, all right, so we're going to do that. And they said, look, you know, in the morning, Chaney Elementary School has huge issues with drop-offs. And if you dump even... Hundred cars from the residential down onto River Road, onto Albemarle. It's just going to be a problem. Oh, we'll reverse it. Well, we'll, we'll make it one way. They can only go up. Come home at, when the schools close. They'll come home in that way, and they'll leave in the morning. Go off River Road. And people go, "Oh, you can do that." I said, sure, we can do that. And then there was a concern about us feeling a little bit too heavy on Albemarle. So the architect kind of carved the building back. That's why it has a relatively odd shape. It followed the prowl mm-hmm. and, fo- and and pulls back all along Abermile to make it less of a scale issue for across the street from Jenny. So the building got better. The project got better through the community engagement. It's work. It's hand-to-hand work. But that's just been our approach because that's just what we do. It's just our, our attitude. So if you look at City Ridge across the street, We've had over 50 meetings with the community, and it's a by-right project. And our approach is the same. Look, we get this privilege to come into your neighborhood and develop in your neighborhood. We know it from that lens, but you know it so much better by living it. I cannot possibly comprehend all the things that you guys have frustrates you or that you enjoy about your community or the things you, you're concerned about. And without you expressing them, there's no way for me to truly know it. So our attitude is we want to hear your, we want to go right to you and hear it. And it's not always pleasant. It's not always things that we want to hear, and we're, not, we're gonna we're not gonna agree all the time. But what typically happens is the, the process yields a better product. And so in Tenley, it was really it was interesting. We had to prove to the Tenley Historic Society that it made sense to build on this national historic landmark. And, you know, we're building, we're basically putting an addition on a, on a landmark building, but it was a retail building. It was a robust mercantile building. It wasn't that precious, you know, turn of the century kind of structure. And so we found actually Shalom Branagh suggested this. We found Richard Longstreth, who was the head of architecture for GW and he was the author of his landmarking. And he was the one that actually wrote up the report why this building was landmarked. And we sat with him and walked him through our vision. And he goes, I absolutely love it. I absolutely agree. These things are not supposed to be precious. These are things that are supposed to be robust. And I absolutely agree. And he said, in fact, I think it should be taller. So he wrote a letter of support. And the board Took it by heart and actually instructed us to go to VZA and add five feet <laughs> because that's the most they could do. under, But they said, go get five more feet and you're approved. And that's what we did. So we all, everyone comes with this fear, right? Some, we, we, we already have this perception that somebody's sure. not going like to take me back to my dad's day. Mm-hmm. Go meet, go talk to him. Right. They're a person, they're a human being. What, what are their needs? What are their, what are their visions? What are their goals? What are their concerns and fears? And, and, and how can we find a middle ground that allows us to unlock this gem? And I would argue that, you know, on the other side of Wisconsin Avenue needs to see significant density. Mm-hmm. And Tenley became a better place because of the project. And we missed a huge opportunity at the library and the school because some politics got in the, in the way and that was a loss of an opportunity you know I think that the city needs to truly recognize that when we have an opportunity we need to we need to
0: take advantage of it so did that project really trigger your i mean you had so much success there trigger your thing you no know, now we, we found our niche right we're, we're now the big deal complicated we now have this understanding of mixed-use projects to some extent so let's now look at other large-scale opportunities like this. Mm-hmm. So you then moved, and you mentioned it earlier, City Market at O mm-hmm. Street. So talk about the evolution of that project and how it came out of the ground. And, and when it, from what you told us when I was brought my ULI mentor group there, that giant store is the largest store in the region. And it was more because just that building was such that you had to had to be one store and couldn't couldn't divide it up etc. So maybe talk about that sure. or I don't know if the Giants deal was the origin of the of the situation or was it even or were other things. So go ahead. And- well, I think both
1: Tenley certainly gave us the confidence that we could do this ourselves. Right. So uh controlling the controlling the design and and really leading the charge to what these things become. So City Market really started back in 2000 when this property was a Derrick property. The market only had one tenant left in it. The parking lot was an open drug market. I remember observing uh, buses from Printers County coming and the bus driver would just sit there in the parking lot and, get, and drink before he got back on his route to go pick up the kids in the afternoon. So it was really a, a problem. And then, you know, late nineties, uh, a 15 year old boy was shot and killed in the market itself. A lot of gang violence, a lot of drug issues. What's the origin of the market? You know, how did it... Oh, so in 1881, the Old Street Market was built. And it was one of a handful of uh, grocery, really grocery offerings in the in the entire city. So you had the Eastern Market. You had, this was called the Central Market at the time. We all call it the Old Street Market now. but or And some people call it the North Market. But it was, it was one of those handful of markets. And you had the Georgetown Market. That's where everybody went grocery shopping originally. So it was a number of stalls, and it was cool. And actually, when I when I told you before, my grandparents owned little grocery stores on the corners in Shaw. They would get their goods from the ocean market, and my uncle actually worked in one of the stalls in the market back in the in the early nineteen hundreds, you know, nineteen I think nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, right before the uh, before the riot. So we come along. And Giant had a relatively successful store that backed up to 9th Street that had all its loading on 9th. And they were doing a very robust business. And this is before City Vista opened with its Safeway and before Whole Foods opened up in, uh, on 14th Street. Mm-hmm. And the city was building a huge complex called the Convention Center with its back door to Shaw. Literally, loading docks, back door to Shaw. And Mayor Williams comes in. There's a bunch of taxes that have been paid that have been on the books for a long time. And he sells all the tax liens to, not all of them, but at an auction. And he sells, and Breen picks up these tax liens. And then they go ahead and secondarily sell them to speculators. And their goal was to get control of the real estate. You've got this big convention center, we could build it for, this could be the convention or hotel. There was all these different visions. But Giant, the only way Giant could lose or lease is through a tax sale. And that's the only way they get foreclosed out. So they were nervous. They had a very successful store. And the city was nervous that they were going to force the only grocery store in this neighborhood out of business. Remember, it was before Safeway and before...
0: So the Giant
1: leased their store from the city? giant leaser store from a gentleman named Mr. Atkins. Mr. Atkins was given the property during the Carter administration after the riots, and he was to develop it. So he did a, a partnership with giant on the grocery store, and he owned the market and the parking lot in between. So Mr. Atkins stopped paying his real estate taxes for years, had a huge tax lien, and never paid back the the Carter administration, for the loan he received. And he was only getting a fraction of what he needed to keep to keep current from Giant on the rent. So Giant now is going to lose a very successful store. Mr. Atkins is about to lose the property through a tax sale. And not only he'll get forgiveness of debt, so he gets hit with a huge tax bill for all the forgiveness of the, I think it was seven million, $8 million that he, didn't, that he owed. And so he would be wiped out, Giant would be wiped out. And we're like, well, wait a minute, there's there's an answer here. So we went to Giant, and we said, Giant, how about if we master lease the whole site to you? So now you're in control. And well, before that, we'll increase your rent significantly. But you'll now have control, you won't lose your site. And Mr. Atkins will use those proceeds to go out and finance, pay off your liens, and we'll give you some money tax-free. You roll your interest into a partnership with us. And then um, we'll manage the process. And then um, upon your death or disability, we will we'll buy you out. And we'll go from there. How did you find this deal? We found this deal because we were a consultant for the convention center through our brokerage business. Mm-hmm. And they said, hey, could you help out? And then at the same time, I get a call from, I was doing some work for Eric Price, the deputy mayor. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. So I get a call from Eric. Hey, do you know anything about this? Get a call from Roger Wright, who was running the real estate for Giant Food. Get a call from him. Say, hey, can you help us out in this? And we put it all kind of together. And we shorted the site up. And we were going to rebuild the market building into stalls. We actually got approval from the city to break it into retail bays. And then Giant was looking to expand. And we thought, that okay, that would be good for, for
0: So another Eastern market,
1: basically. Yeah. Or re- yeah. revitalization. Revitalization, yeah. exactly. And Giant would... Then the market building collapsed in a snowstorm about four or five years later while Giant managed the property. And they were like, we, we don't want to rebuild. We don't know how to rebuild this market building. You know... Right. Well, is this our opportunity now to rethink about the project? So they said, look, if you can get us, and this is the same time Stop and Shop took over, they said, well, mm-hmm. if you can get us a 65,000 square foot store, mm-hmm. we'll redevelop. We'll, we'll let you redevelop this property. So we, I don't know, we must have 30 or 40 iterations of this. So at the end of the day, what we did is we said, okay, we can't fit a 65,000 square foot store at grade because there's no... There's not, there's not enough dimension to give you that. But what if we put the loading below grade and you break up your pallets below and you get another 20 some odd thousand feet downstairs and then you can service your store up there and go, okay, well, you got to prove to us it works. So we said, well, who is your engineer? So Roger Wright actually suggested that we hire this guy, Mike McNeese, who is a an engineer, a civil engineer. For, that it sits on the board of sits on the real estate committee for Stop and Shop and does all their layouts, and I hired him. so Mike McNeese as a consultant. So Mike McNeese designed a loading dock and how the trucks would work and how the back of the house would work. And once we got Mike' plan to work, we Stop and Shop was oh yeah, Mike. Way. If Mike says that works, fine. And so utilizing some of some of that talent, then we said, okay, now that we're bringing the trucks downstairs, which is not an easy thing to do, why don't we start the whole project that way? And we can create this 360 degree experience and not have any loading at grade and have no residential move ins, move outs at right. grade. And we know grocery stores real well. So we spent a lot of time designing the, the store. I mean, we we're actually working with a designer in, at a Quincy, Mass. And, how does this feel when you enter? And What does the market look like? And what is in the market? And how do we do the ventilation? And how do we do the mechanical systems and the vertical integration? And, and how do I gang up and deal with all the gravity flow utilities and the live loads? And so and so? it just was allowed us to use what we do in retail and what we learned on the residential and to, and to marry them. So I, my, my sense was... There's a lot of really good companies that can do uh, retail uh, by itself. And there's a lot of really good companies that can do multifamily by itself. But there's not a lot that can do it vertically integrated and truly make them work together and understand the infrastructure necessary to allow these things to have a degree of separation while they're sitting on top of each other. And so my whole attitude is you love to live on top of a grocery store. But you don't want to be reminded you live on top of a grocery store (laughs) where you're home, right? You want to be able to take that elevator down, get into the grocery store, and say, oh, this is great. And when you get up, you don't want to smell the bakery. You don't want to know, be reminded. So using all those kind of thought process, I think, lends us to do these more creative, a little bit more challenging construction projects like we're doing at City Ridge. And then our attitude is we believe in placemaking. We believe... In, in creating a an experience, not at only at the ground plane, but we take our placemaking up now through the buildings. So if you go through City Market, you're going to see uh, a venue where we do forty concerts a year. You're going to see a waterfall that's six, you know, that's sixteen feet by thirty feet up on the roof next, you know, next to a, a boardwalk, and you're going to experience placemaking on the roof that most people don't want to, you know, do. They'll So if they build residential, they put all their amenities together and that way they can manage them. But I believe people like to have moments. There's a moment that I really want to be in the thick of things. And there's a moment I just want to sit by a fire pit, overlook the Capitol and not be with everyone. And so we've created those moments
0: throughout the property. So there are three things more about this project I want to go through. Okay. I brought my group and you had a panel and we heard a lot about this project from your attorney, from, you know, all the scope. So there are some events that occurred during construction that I want to get into and also the size of the giant store. So let's start with that because you were just talking about giant and why so big? I mean, because, I mean, the idea was you're going to take the existing building and either divide it up into smaller units and, or maybe, and integrate the giant store. Why did you, and how did Stop and Shop get around the idea of doing an 80 Whatever eighty thousand square foot store there. So
1: first of all, it had to be for both Giant and, and at the time, you know, Giant guys and the Stop Shop guys. It had to be seen as meaningful enough to justify tearing down a right an existing store. Right. And they were you, now you have Safeway at City Vista, and now you have Whole Foods, and Giant was you know a nineteen eighties version of itself. So it needed to remake itself. So we had to be significant enough to justify them closing their store and investing. Quite frankly, they could invest in capital into this new, into this new store. So we could max out 57,000 feet on grade because of the... We had to maintain 100 foot right away along 8th Street, even though we own 8th Street, but it was still part of the thought plan. So we had to honor that. And we needed to carve in a little residential lobbies. On the north side for both the Hodge and for our market rate housing, that left 57,000 feet. That wasn't enough. And we wanted to get the trucks down. So our idea is okay, well, if we bring the trucks down, we'll build you a 21,000 square foot back of the house. So they moved all their meetings, all their back rooms, all their break rooms, everything that you would do when you typically do in the back of the store, they moved it downstairs. And so now they come in with their trucks. they don't need a pallet room because the pallet room is downstairs. Mm-hmm. They don't, they have big freezers and walk-in boxes and they actually break down the pallets below grade, bring them up these two freight elevators and populate the store. So if you went to a normal store, 30, 30 feet or so, the back of the store is all back of the house. Right. Here, it's de minimis, very little back of the house. More of that left, more selling area, more display area. And- it needed to be a compelling exercise for for Giant to agree. I'm going to close the store for two years and do this, and so that really drove. And remember, they had the master lease right. on the property, so right. without without their cooperation, without their interest, this project wasn't going to happen. So once we designed it, we went to the city and said, "Look, this can work." But you know, it's 2000 at that time, 2009 financial pro- crash. We got $100 million of infrastructure for this below-grade loading, any way the city could help us with the the infrastructure. And Jack Evans was our council member at the time, and he um, gave us, not gave us, but he basically helped us get a TIF, and we ended up getting a TIF from the city for $35 million. That allowed us to defray the costs of, of this robust project. So our capital stack is extremely unusual. You have land, you have a little bit of cash, the cash is actually not, our capital partner was not a big piece of the of the stack. You had Giant, the land, the development and air rights. You had the city and we went to HUD and did a, a deal with HUD. And at that time, President Obama was looking for big projects that could make a difference. And so we got named as one of the 14 shovel ready projects by, by President Obama. We're on the White House website for years <laughs> because we, we were using, we were at that time, one of the largest HUD loans ever done. And HUD was phenomenal. They, they gave us some waivers because we had a big robust retail plan, which is not something they typically do, but they saw it was important for the neighborhood. And the other thing they did is they, they were not interested in us paying back any of the, the capital through air right sales, they wanted that, they didn't want to undo the Ginnie Mae bonds. So they, their collateral stopped at the, at the waterproof membrane of the podiums to allow for the affordable housing piece to be built, for the hotel to be built, and the last set of apartments, which is called 880P to be built. And so being creative, being thoughtful, being problem solving, which it's not something people would think of, but the truth is HUD did all those things. And the city actually did the same so we got everyone excited everyone on board and we said to them look we're going to grab hands and we're going to jump off this cliff together but that's the only way to do this project and so that project doesn't happen without the situation we came in doesn't help happen without giant foods cooperation the city's support or the federal support this is quite a public private incredible deal private deal and it paid back the bonds on the TIF like that. Actually, the city was blown away about how quickly, how successful it's been. It has uh, legitimized Shaw as a significant place. We've so seen a whole host of other developments take place that are robust. The ground plane experience along Shaw is completely different. It's not an open drug market anymore. No. It's, it's a mix of incomes. The giant is actually the centerpiece that everyone Goes to the old market is still there, and it symbolizes what was once was. And Shaw is, in our opinion, is continues to be the rich cultural, rich environment, and that was the goal. It wasn't supposed to become Noma. It wasn't supposed to become the ballpark district. It's surrounded by a historic district. It's supposed to hold on to it, but it got a shot in the arm. It got an economic shot in the arm, which has rewarded that community tremendously.
0: That's phenomenal. So you finished, that project took, what, almost 15 years to finish completely? Or at least 10 years, right?
1: Well, once we started construction, um, we
0: started construction in 2011. It really took six years. You started assembling it, you said, in 2000. In
1: 2000, we bought the site. But the idea was we were going to just put it to bed for a while. It really was the collapse of the market building that Opened everybody's eyes. We got to do something. Can't just leave this property like this. And giant actually having competition. They didn't have any competition before. Now they right. have competition, and now they're like, okay, we, we got to do something too. We want a more robust site. It took a lot of situations and things to come now, together.
0: As I recall, there was a, wasn't there a fire during the during the, the no
1: pandemic? there was a flood
0: a flood okay. there was a flood there was okay. actually a, a really really really
1: unfortunate <laughs> flood. At what point in the construction? This is like the worst point in construction. The last building, 880, was being completed, and we were close to 100% occupied in the other buildings, and Mm -hmm. the flood happened to the old other buildings. So the other buildings with existing tenants had a main, a water main. A valve broke open in the middle of the night, which was not supposed to be on, which was was a whole host of uh, stuff. We had to deal while not only the construction, we had to deal with managing people's whole lives turned upside down. I mean, when we we're talking about flood, one woman, I think, had like three feet of water in her, her apartment. So it was it was a devastating event that our contractor car construction stepped up and really stepped up big in real time to help us and help the tenants. Our management company, Bazudo, stepped up and really helped manage the process. Did you have insurance covered most of the cost of that, or was that... Um Almost all the out-of-pocket was covered by insurance, but it was the it was the disruption of people's lives. Right, right. It was the, got to move you to a, a hotel, got to move you to a furnished apartment.
0: Did it affect any of yeah. the commercial tenants, or was it only the residential?
1: No, it was only the residential. The commercial didn't get it affected that much, because where the flood took place, it took place mostly above the units and not above the commercial. But anytime that happens, it's a... It's wow. a it's a nightmare because you're dealing with people's lives, their That's personal right. belongings, their sense of security. It took us, the team, a long time to rebuild what we had. What we see City Market really is there's this really incredible, robust sense of community and our retention is in the 60s to 70% range. Right. And so that event disrupted. It tested all of us. It disrupted a lot of. Do you really believe in the sense of community or do you not? Do you just follow the rules on their insurance and don't do this and that? Or do you go the extra mile for your tenants? And we chose the latter. So we chose going the extra mile for the tenant, fight the fight for the tenants because it goes back to our roots. Right. It's about, it's a really at the end of the day, it's about the tenants. It's about it's about the people. It's about it's about the human beings that are enjoying and, and embracing what you build. That's what it's about. Without that, there's no reason for us to be. So our approach was you lean in. You lean into it. You don't you don't avoid it. You don't hide behind a contractor. You don't hide behind a you know an insurance company. No, you you lean in, and you say, we're gonna make this right. And you don't worry about anything else. I'll take care of that. And that was really been our, our
0: approach. So the tenants were pleased at the end of the day. I yeah, I mean,
1: I'm sure there's still a few that are
0: not too pleased. Sprout. But yeah, but what I, year was that this happened? I think this took place in 2016. So not too long
1: ago. Not too long ago, and we're back to 99 percent leased. That's great uh, throughout the entire property. That's great. We're our retention is as high as it's ever been, but it's, it's effort, it's, it's, and it's everyday effort. It's not just a big event, it's a little events. Do you have a management presence on-site there? We do. We have three of us spend time on the property, really on the asset side, and then Bizzuto is on-site, right. so they're a pretty strong, robust company, and they're on-site, and we have really good leadership there, but we spend we spend a lot of time. It's our asset. The three of us own it. It's a personal thing for us. It's a legacy. You know, when we were when we were designing the Hodge building, which is the affordable housing building uh, on the corner of 7th, we told everybody, look, the reason why it's one of the most attractive buildings in the collection of buildings, and it's it's 100% leased, I said, we want you to think that your grandparents are living here. And so we designed it. It's an elegant building. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't walk in there and think it's an affordable housing building. You would think it's a market rate housing building. And that's just been our approach. And so we get married to our properties. We get excited, we get embedded into the neighborhoods we do business in. We get involved in the charitable organizations that surround our properties. So that becomes
0: important. Also. Obviously you have this expertise and you're, you're continuing doing consulting work and you're doing smaller centers as well. Mm-hmm. So you did a large project down on 95, I believe a big power center project. This was all going on while you were doing city market at all. So it sounds like you're more than just a big project. You want to continue doing other retail sure. situations. Sure. So part of your footprint is to have that opportunity as well as just doing these big mega projects at a time. Is that
1: the yeah, theme I... of that? Our roots are
0: still retail, so we did a
1: big town center with BlackRock. We bought a 100-acre site down in Prince William County, and and that's actually how we met with um, our first meeting, real engagement with Wegmans. They were a big tenant on the site. It was a half a million square foot of retail. Every name you can imagine, Apple and Chico's and White House Black
0: Market. 500,000 retail.
1: 500,000 feet of retail with another about 500 residential units. And planned to be five hundred thousand feet of office. But it's all on one level, right? It's all on one level. So when we got down there, when we bought this property, it was entitled to be vertically integrated. It was actually designed to be residential, but these were small little blocks. Like, you're not going to get rewarded for adding the costs associated. It adds about thirty thousand dollars a door at that time to layer residential on top of retail, and it becomes it doesn't become successful either not one. Practical. Yeah, it's not practical. And it's also the tenants on above you don't want to enjoy it and the tenants below don't enjoy it. It's a, it why are we doing this? Just because that's an urban model where you, where that makes sense. Here we have plenty of land. So we decoupled all the residential from the plan and we put it all into one one big zone. And we sold that to, uh, to a, a stick-built residential developer and he built 350 units, successful, very successful. And we created, we put our energy into the retail and the retail, we, you could imagine, we bought the property in 2007, we were under construction, 2008 hits, mm-hmm. we had 235,000 feet of leather tents that all evaporated in a matter of two days. And when you do a lifestyle type of project, all the retail, I call it the high school effect, like... I'm throwing a party and John will only come if Susie's coming and Susie will only come if Robbie's coming. I love that. And so you've got to convince John to come and Susie to come <laughs> to get Robbie to come so then you get three other people. That's right. And it's exactly, you know, retailers the mission. among themselves. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And the retailers are not leading edge in
0: right. the mood.
1: They don't like to take a lot of risk. There's no. enough risk in their business. We... Worked with Wegmans to open by themselves. So the site wouldn't go fallow and we can continue to do the infrastructure and our investors could see the best out of a very bad situation. It's like the worst time in the world for the market to collapse on you. And Wegmans agreed to open by themselves. And as long as we build two blocks a little bit after, and we build two blocks and so got that 100% lease. It wasn't easy, but we got that lease. So go on all right, we go back to our partners, okay, we can get the rest. And we got those started. We built six six double-sided blocks, 1,300 meter feet of frontage. And we had REI and, and on one end and Wegmans on the other end. And we filled it in with all these restaurants and lifestyle and merchandise the street. All post-2008. All post-2008. And we completed that project and then we sold it. For, and BlackRock sold it. And... They were very happy you know a lot of projects they at that time just lost tens of millions of dollars and this one survived so the
0: Wegmans relationship really meant a lot yes yes and having them to what convinced them that they wanted to stay and keep going with that instead of pulling the plug on that project
1: well I think at that at that point they they still believe that it was a great site and they believe that the market, it opened up such a large swath of marketplace for them, right. I mean, especially for their suburban model. All of Prince George's, uh, Prince William County. Prince William County, yeah, up and down the 9 to 5 corridor. In fact, they did so well that it made sense for them to open their store in Telegraph Road to try to take away some of the, the shopping, the, the pressure on um, on, on our stowbridge Potomac Town Center project. You know, Wegmans is interesting. They're going through a transformation, right? So they're used to doing these very large, that was 138,000 square foot store in the suburban market and thinking, okay, we circle all these great markets. How do we penetrate? So Ralph Uterra from Wegmans called me up and we were doing O Street. So we were comparing notes. I was like, mm-hmm. come on, when next time you in, know, let's go show you what we're doing in giant. So while we're under construction, we walked with his team and showed him what we did and how we unlocked the loading and how we did this and that. He must've loved it. He, he loved it. He loved it. And then Danny Wegman came down and he fell in love with what we did there and the architecture and the approach. And we said, okay, what do we, you know, you guys want to do urban. So I went up to Rochester I went to, and I brought, uh, I brought our, our, uh, their fixture plan for Potomac for, town center and I laid it on and said, okay, what do you guys want to cut? Nothing. What do you mean? How do you get from 138 to 70 or whatever without cutting something? So we started looking at the different departments. And I said, okay, well, can we at least agree that you don't have to buy oatmeal in five different places? Can we buy oatmeal in one place or two places? Because if you walk through their larger stores and they're very thoughtful, you can buy yogurt in multiple places. In fact, they're so focused on their customer. That they bring a convenience dairy case up close to the up to the uh, point of sale, uh, for the POS system. So if you forgot to get milk, you don't have to run all the way back to the right hand corner of the store. You can literally just grab milk off the shelf or yogurt or something. So they they really, I mean, they're, they're I can't say enough about them as merchants. They're just really great merchants. So there's no one else
0: like Wegmans. Not that highlight, I have highlight a little more. You just started to do, but. I- Bring more into that because uh, they've been a fascinating tenant to me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, I grew up in retail as well. I mean, my dad was a department store manager. He was a, a buyer, a merchant hmm. for, for thirty years for, what store? for the J L Hudson Company. Oh in Detroit, yeah, oh Michigan. yeah, yeah. And he led. He managed the largest department stores in the Detroit area: the downtown store, the Eastland, and Northland wow. stores. These stores were well. The downtown store at its peak was over a million square foot. Northland was seven hundred thousand. Right. Eastland was five hundred thousand. Right. I worked in both of them as kids, so I retail was really interesting to me. But you know, and of course, watching grocery stores evolve from A and P, the little wood plank store mm-hmm. when knew as a kid, to what they are, and then when the first time I went in a Wegman's store, I said, "This place is different." So get into that a little bit. Why is Wegman's so cool? good and, and why do people just can't understand how nobody else has done this yet?
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to put it into words because it's, because it, like you said, it's an experience, right? So it's yes. something more than just, you don't yes. go to just wagons to pick up a quarter milk. You, you go there really because of the, of the experience that they create. I think the first approach they take to a site is how it works for their customer. They, they are very customer focused. To like the Nordstrom's approach, where it's really about you as a customer, and they'll figure out how to operate the store. Not saying they'll do crazy things and and not consider their their staff, because staff loyalty is also extraordinarily important to them. They're not they're not only the coolest and neatest and most interesting grocery store; they're also the top five best places to work. In all businesses, year after year. Yeah. So that model is a phenomenal approach, and I believe it starts it starts at the top, middle, bottom. So Danny Wegman and Colleen Wegman's approach, from my experience and you know from my interactions with them, they are enormously thoughtful people. that care about people first. When the financial crisis was happening. Danny Wegman decided to roll back prices to help families. Wow. You know, his approach was we can get through this together. And he lowered prices to help working families be able to afford their groceries. Cuz he's he's that's that's just who they are. His he told me once my goal is to have you eat healthy. That's why I push my produce department And that's why I push organics. But if you want to go order that ground beef, I'll sell it to you, but it'll be the best ground beef you can buy. But my goal is to actually get you to eat healthy. And his whole approach is about holistic thought process. So it starts with that attitude, right? That attitude. Totally different mindset. Totally different mindset. It's like we're on a journey together and the first step we take really does matter. You can't undo the first step. And so his approach is the first step is it's about my customer and it's about their quality of life. And then everything flows from there. And then it says, okay, now what, what, how much fun can we have in the store? What can we do to make this a different experience? And I think the reason why we resonate, they resonate with us and we want to do business with them is because we have the same approach, our approach is, okay, well, let's get the basics out. Let's get the basics done so this thing can work. But now let's talk about how we can take it to another place. Mm-hmm. And it's not because we think that it's, you know, that in incremental dollar is going to show such a great incremental return. It does sometimes, but it creates brand loyalty. It creates a reason that people want to be part of what you do. And then for when that happens and people own it and they take ownership of it, you've won. So think about every Wegmans you've been in. That's my Wegmans. People take it. That's what Giant used to be. Right. Right? Exactly. People used to yeah. think of Izzy Cullen. Yeah. Talk about the stories of him walking into exactly. stores and being passionate about what he presented to this There's always the
0: difference between Giant and Safe Wegmans. Right. You know, right. It's just that personal it touch. Was, right. And that personal
1: touch is what Wegmans has today mm-hmm. that a lot of the great chains lost. You know, the Gernard- Gernardis and the... And the Balducci's, and and Balducci's to some extent, but they struggle a little bit. But here's what's going to take place in the future. What is grocery store going to look like tomorrow? They're rolling out huge 10,000 square foot vending machines for grocery. Amazon's looking at a no point of sale trend, you know, grocery store. Separate from Whole Foods? or Separate from Whole Foods. So now you've got, now you've got. You know, everybody looking at different ways and different things. You now, how do we transact? How do we get that goods to your house? You've, you know, now we've got delivery systems for people who, you know, Peapod's been around for a while, but now we've got actually other strangers going in and picking groceries and bringing them to your house. Delivery of groceries to the home is going to change. There's going to be technology that's soon to be that where you'll open your refrigerator, you'll plug in your refrigerator, what you're going to make, and it will know the expiration dates of everything that's in your refrigerator oh, and what yeah. you need. Exactly. And then if we can push that and populate that to the store, then it shows up at your doorstep.
0: Without even asking.
1: Without asking. So let's say you want to make a meal today <laughs> and you, every time you put a sour cream into your refrigerator... It, you're scanning the barcode, which says what the expiration date is of that sour cream,
0: and it knows if it's bad or
1: not. So you're not thinking, oh, I, got, I, I tell the story at short time. I make this great French toast. I need cinnamon. I don't know if I had cinnamon. I have five things of cinnamon because I go, oh, I can make sure I have cinnamon or for no extract. We, as humans, can't lose that human touch. If We just become a creature of... We just want a product and we're going to lose our social peace. And that's why what we're trying to do in our projects is we're trying to keep that
0: social realm, create those social places. It has to be an experience. Yes. The only way in my mind for retail to to exist going forward is you have to have a reason to go there. Exactly. What is that reason? Right. So, you know, otherwise you just sit in front of your computer. And order everything, and it's all delivered to you. And you
1: yeah. don't even have to experience right. it. But human beings are social animals, right? Thank God! Thank goodness! Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we would all live in our little bubble, which we do sometimes. But yeah, you're right. There's got to be that experience. And retail now that means it needs to rethink of how it how it acts and interacts with its customer. It's not en- it's not enough just to deliver goods. It's got to be. Something that's more tangible, more that they there's a value proposition to it. So
0: that's a perfect segue to now talk about what you have under construction across the street here and start. If you can, I know we've gone a long time, but I would like to hear that story because it's a it's a spectacular story, and I'd love to hear about sure, it. Sure, so no, I appreciate that. how you got involved in it and uh, why and what your vision was as you were looking to acquire it. So it actually started. Let me just explain. We're sitting across the street from the former Fannie Mae headquarters here in Washington, D.C. on Wisconsin Avenue, which Fannie Mae developed, I believe, in the 1970s, maybe 60s, somewhere in that range. So a older than that.
1: Uh, it's a little bit older than that, but you're right. It's been actually an iteration of, of construction. So we got involved from basically a failure. So we failed to win the bid to rebuild Walter Reed and ours is a city RFP a city RFP on George Avenue. It's not even in the neighborhood. So by fitting on Walter Reed and actually Wegmans asked us to bid on Walter Reed. So they came to us and said, look, could you guys put together a team? And so we put together a pretty robust team and we had 700,000 feet of leases done. We had, we had used, we had, Children's Hospital, three hundred thousand feet. We had Wegmans at one hundred fifty thousand feet. We had National Organization of Rare Disorders who was going to bring bring their conference center here. We had hotel, two hotels. We had uh, restaurants and retailers all identified, and we lost. We lost a bid. And today, to this day, I don't, really still don't know why I lost a bid. We lost a bid, so we took a step back and we said, okay. And I, you know, I'm trying to get the city to still engage with my users and we really couldn't get any traction there. Um, Children's Hospital ended up getting 12 acres from the federal government, from the army after working with us right next behind the project. So they got part of the state department's land and they're under construction to build an incredible incubator. So I'm still involved with them on their real estate committee and, and helping them Worked through that, and it's really kind of very rewarding. It's like, I love Jordan's National. But then Wegmans tried to make a deal, and they it just it just never could happen. So I'm like, okay, well, there's, there's still an opportunity for us to bring Wegmans to D.C. And so we were looking around, and this story, story actually starts even before that. I don't know if you recall, but Vernado and Forest City were going to redevelop the old Southwest Mall. Where yes. Safeway was. Yes. And they were having a little bit of difficulty getting Safeway to cooperate for the new store there. That was Charlie Bressler's property, right. was it not? Right. Yeah. So Vernado and Forest City hired me because I did six deals with Safeway to come up with an idea of how to reload, get Safeway to agree to get out of the way of this development. And Fannie Mae was the tenant. So Fannie Mae was going to be there. So I got, I met with all the senior people at Fannie Mae, Fernando, Forest City on helping them try to unlock that site. And then Fannie Mae got into some stuff and they they dropped that deal. And Forest City took the plan for the Safeway Reload and built the project. And the government came in back to that site. But that started years and years and years ago through that conversation. And so when when Cushman Wakefield put out a package saying, you know, Fannie's going to sell these three sites, we looked at the site across the street and we looked at one in Van Ness and I really wanted to hone in my thoughts there. So early on, I went to Wegmans and I said, what do you guys think? It's a big footprint. It's a big site. It's in the marketplace you want to be. We were going to create a place at Walter Reed so spectacular that we were going to pull a lot of this part of the town over to to Walter Reed, which I still think would have been the best thing for Walter Reed because it would have activated George Avenue and it would have made a greater price because you would go out of your way to go to Wegmans. You're not going to go past a Whole Foods or go past a Giant to get to another one of those tours. You're going to go out of your way to get to to that Wegmans. And I thought that was going to be robust and helpful to that part of the city. But no, I I was alone in my vision. So immediately Wegmans jumped in with us and said, yes. So we started to form around this site. And Cushman went through a process. There were like 20 or so investors or bidders on the site. And we were just one lonely guy. We get to the final rounds. I had this idea, you know, look, Fannie Mae wants to get the most money for the site. They're a seller. But they're also a pseudo-government agency that cares about the legacy and what they're going to leave behind. And they've been in this neighborhood since the 70s. And this has been an iconic building representing what Fannie Mae was. And I think they're going to care more about what is going to be done with their property than just the highest price. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So I went to the mayor, explained that to them. her. I went to the congresswoman, explained that to her. And, I, and in fact, my work with Children's Hospital, the former CEO of Children's Hospital, was the board director of Children's Hospital. Not, I'm not saying any of them were able to really turn the table, but they at least said, look, we care about what this is. It's more than just a housing opportunity. It's, it's got to be robust. 3,000 people were going to leave this neighborhood, mm-hmm. And the same thing happened with Walter Reed. Thousands of people left Walter Reed and Georgia Avenue died up and down the vine. All the retailers has been dying. And we're like, look, that too can happen in Wisconsin Avenue if you don't bring a robust project that's at least going to think about something more than one-dimensional. And all my final bidders were one-dimensional. They were going to build stick-built housing on top of uh, a concrete podium. And it was a great opportunity for them to build 800 units, but nobody was doing commercial. And we said, look, this, this is Wisconsin Avenue. This is like the most important retail corridor there is in the entire marketplace. How could we not? If we can't figure it out here, then we can't figure it out anywhere. You did have a precedent,
0: though, which was good, in that the Zudos project down the road here was a good precedent for what
1: you're doing. Well, it was to an extent. Giant, the redevelopment of the Giant um, down at uh, Cathedral Commons you're referring to. It was a great precedent for me to want to do this by right, not go through a PUD, uh-huh. because that took 15 years. Right. And Giant and Stop and Shop really did the lift, and Zudo came in and built it. But, but this was really designed by years and, years and years and years and years and years of iteration. And we didn't want to go through that same mishigash. And to the point where the community can actually prescribe how many linear feet of restaurants can be in that property which I'm like, no, I'm not. You guys, retail is this is organic thing that has to find its own level. You can't dictate to me what retail Well, the be. issue
0: there, of course, is giant. is in Massachusetts, Quincy, and you have a local development group there working that deal. Well enough, I don't think. Yeah, you know, I don't know. They have a good legal counsel because I've heard a presentation about the project, yeah. and their counsel was all over it, but...
1: I wasn't that aware of it. I mean, I mm-hmm. followed it to okay. some extent. Yeah. I'm just but for us, our approach was it's not just about the wagmans. It's about everything else, you know, it's about what they what they could allow us to do. So now if you look at the site, what we've done is we've lowered the elevation underneath the existing building. And so there's a twenty foot grade difference between Wisconsin Avenue and the and the and the front door. Dig out. We've dug out. So we held up this building, changed the structural, completely did a full structural modification to
0: the building while we dug out 8 to 12 feet of earth underneath the building. Was that your experience at City Market at all that made you think that way? Yeah. Or what, what, what drove that decision?
1: Well, what drove that decision was historic preservation was not allow us to put Wegmans. We were going to originally put them in the first floor facing Wisconsin Avenue and take out the second floor slab of the building and create the height they needed and then basically build the back. And then he said, no, we're not going to let you do don't. We don't want you to do that. So then we thought, okay, well, we have a footprint to work with. Wegmans, do do you need to be seen from Wisconsin? I mean, is visibility important? no, not really. I mean, you give me signage. That's all I care about, Richard. They don't need to see my store to know that I'm there. So okay. So Brian Corcoran in my office who runs our construction group said, you know what? It's a steel building. Richard, why don't we lower the slab? Why don't we lower, lower the structure? So we brought in Tadger Cohen, our structural engineer, and our architects, and we started to explore this idea. Now, remember, we bought this site for 850,000 square feet of FAR, it's approved for 1.7 million square feet of mm-hmm. FAR. The front building wasn't historic at that time, but we designated historic because we, because we leaned in. So we took it through its designation. And we have this retailer that wants to be there, about 82,000 feet. How do we, how do, and they have a clearance height they need. They need about 22 feet of height. How do we create that? So Brian, our engineers, our architects at Shalom we came up with a plan on how to hold the building up, and we hired Burkle Foundations. So there's four engineers. I would I, I wanted to sign the plan before we would actually lower the slab, and we went to our partners before we bought the property. We brought in Nash North American Sakasui House. Who we met on a failed other attempt at something else in the marketplace, and became friendly with and and stayed in touch. And it took them, I think, less than twenty-four hours on this major project to say we're in. So they were our they became our partner.
0: Immediately. All your pre-development
1: costs. No, uh, we funded <laughs> all the pre-development up to that date, up till okay. right. up till actually up till closing. Mm-hmm. We we pretty much funded that, but then we got. You know, got back. So Nash came in and has been our partner. So we said, look, we could build 300,000 feet more if we lowered a slab, use Wisconsin Avenue as our measuring point, start 20 feet down where Wegman's entrance, use their entrance as basically the new village, create the village in the back so we could bring people down through. Everybody was on board because the cost of lowering the slab was the minimum compared to 300,000 feet of additional FAR. And that's that's really how we figured out
0: how to lower the building. So, is the site before you started this? Was the, is the site sloped at this point, or is it pretty flat site overall? When
1: we started, it had a slope to it. Um, okay. There was a garage in the back that was partially below grade. There was a basement to the old building, so there was fourteen. They, it it get, had fourteen feet below that we already were start, We you know we were spotted with. And then, so we're really not lowering it by twenty feet. We're lowering it by eight feet, really, in, in essence. But by pushing everything down and allowing all the lobbies to t- and all the beginnings of these buildings to start twenty feet below Wisconsin, allowed us to get two store extra stories of height throughout all the, throughout the. So, program. how much land
0: did you did you exca- excavate? Uh,
1: five acres. Five time, acres times three, and that's just the garage. And then underneath Wegmans is probably another acre. so. How about, many
0: trucks of dirt did you take out of the site? I don't know the
1: total number of trucks, but it's about 440,000 cubic yards of oh. dirt. And it's one of the largest digs in the city. And the garage is mammoth. And so so now we had to bring loading down. So that's what we did learn from from, from our experience oh, at O Street. Street. And once we got the loading to go down for Wegmans, we decided, well, let's just keep going. And we brought the trucks down below, two levels below, and now all the move and move-outs take place below. So now we have a 360-degree experience again. We now can make the streets smaller and narrower, more pedestrian-oriented. And we created this really cool village, um, which, by the way, I have a virtual reality if you ever want to see that, but it's really cool. I saw it on
0: your website, if that's the same no, way. No, you it's can different.
1: actually walk through the buildings oh, walk physically. through
0: these streets and
1: get scale and some real sense of what this place is going to be. And we brought in Michael Ferguson early on, uh, who's a landscape architect, world-renowned landscape architect. And he, together with Chloé Moranis Associates, Robert Spazzo, leading the charge, really created the place. We wanted the landscaping to be a big moment because of the front lawn and the trees and what it meant to the overall scale of Wisconsin Avenue. And then uh, we have different Designers inside of SBA, our architect, pen each building. So now the buildings look like they don't look like they're one of one elk. They are one hand. They look like they're really of multiple. And they have different functions. We have a commercial building that sits at the middle. That's across from Wegmans, which we sign lease with Equinox. For we have sixty thousand feet of office that we're going to be leasing. We're about halfway through negotiating Letterman Tents for half of that space, and then we have a. Really cool members only pool club that has a restaurant bar that sits on the roof. That a commercial user and a resident could be uh, have a members only kind of um, relationship. And then we have a collection of restaurants. We signed a lease with Kinder Care because there's a huge need for daycare in the area. And that came through our conversations with the community and in our surveys. And then we signed a lease with uh, International Baccalaureate for 100,000 feet on top of Wegmans in the old building. And so it's becoming this multi-dimensional, multi-purpose environment that creates a true 24-7 experience, and that's what our goal was. Our goal was to create something multi-dimensional. And our hope is that people are going to want to live in this new creation of a place because of these incredible views of the park, convenience access. and the retail and the shops and the Wegmans and the employment, all those all kind of work together. And so the goal is that, you know, one plus one equals three.
0: So you're not on a metro station. So how are you, how are you handling the transportation aspect of the project? So we're about
1: half a mile south of, um, of Tenley. A couple of things. One, we're going to have a shuttle that, that does a loop throughout. And we're working with, we may be working with some of our neighbors who want to be part of that. So we can create this kind of a non-stop kind of this loop of shuttle experience. There are four buses that go down Wisconsin Avenue from Metro. Right. From Metro. So right. there's four lines that go right across and stop and we'll have a new bus stop right in front of us. And then, you know, really Uber has kind of replaced some of the demand to be right on Metro. So that's whole sharing experience. So we're hoping that's a combination of, of all those things. Pedestrian connections between our north and south neighbors, walkability. Oh, scooters. Scooters. We're doing a, a bike valet uh, system where you can come and not only can you park your bike on the street and lock it off, but you could also bring it to this bike shop and get a valet ticket and say, hey, you know, I want you to tune it up for us. And if you're a resident, you come home and you literally just drop your bike at that valet and then go inside your building. And they... Services and so forth. So there's a whole bunch of things we're doing that around transportation. That's not just about the car, but we do provide ample parking and significant amount of parking
0: for the automobile. So your this Wegman's store is going to be the only one. I mean, the closest one to here that I'm aware of is either Germantown, Maryland, Columbia, Maryland, or maybe there's one in Virginia that's closer than that, but I don't know. What what is the other the so closest you, one? You have Tyson's is under construction. Okay. That's
1: going to open up um, yes, on the, um, in the in the end of towards the end of uh, next year. So about ten months, will open. The Saw is doing a huge project oh, almost right. on Rockville Pike. That's right. Um, in north Bethesda. That's right. So that's going to help us to this to the north for traffic. But for a while, it will be, you know, have, you know, even Tyson's being open. It's still going to be predominantly the only one
0: for 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 a while. And it's only eighty two thousand square feet. It's not their big footprint.
1: It's not their big footprint, but it's still a big grocery store. I mean, it's mm-hmm. still it's still a robust store. Our hope is that this is not the only store they do in the in the district, and our hope is that they do store, you know, not only the the BF Saw store, but they do another store closer in. But that's, you know, that, that's really up to them. So what we believe is how do we flow people in and out on a transactional basis? We think the transactions are really going to be, that's going to be really our traffic jam. It's not yes. the parking. It's not, you know, it's not really just the auditorium roads, but it's also once they get in, how do we make it easy for them to navigate? So we are we form a, a working group with Park Assist, and we're coming up with a ticketless parking system Interesting. that allows free flow into the garage. So we don't stop you to get a ticket. You don't have to remember to bring your ticket to get validated. You go into a parking spot and we'll do color coding pucks, depending on who should park where. So the office parks in, in a one color retail parks in green, right? Employees park in yellow and it captures your license plate. So when you're in that stall, it knows you're in space 115. So when you go up to the store and you say, hey, I'm in space 115, they'll validate your space, which now knows your license plate. So it's the toll road technology, basically. Right. exactly. So now, without the transponder. So now, you pull out and you go to the gate. It red, your license plate knows you're validated, opens up, you drive out. If you're an office employee, you park and knows your license plate, knows you parked at the right spot. When you leave, it goes... So that allows us to turn the office spaces to green after office hours. It allows us during the holiday hours to turn the employee parking to green to to say, hey, Christmas and Thanksgiving and these holidays, we don't want you guys to park here. We want you to take alternative transportation. And that turns to green. So it allows us to kind of use this garage multi-purposely and multi-dimensionally as opposed to saying, I'm just segregating these spaces and segregating that space. And that's just old technology. So the goal is, is, is to allow that, that free flow of, of, of activity. And it it really is important that the site has multiple ways in and multiple ways out. It doesn't work otherwise. Literally. And that's why, I mean, we're we're doing almost the scale of Bethesda Row with two entrances on Wisconsin and one off on 39th Street. If you think about how many entrances and ways in and out of with this row, it's 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 incredibly numerous. So so it's really important that the place not feel like you're you're stuck. You got to be able to flow. And we all know from projects, even great projects, that don't have good parking, then that project suffers.
0: It's Really important. Yeah. Good so let me uh, before we uh, stop, I want to move a little bit into your company how it's evolved, what your philosophy is as a company, what you're trying to accomplish, and then also get into some personal philosophy on what you would share to young people and their thought process. And then the final two questions are, if you're sitting across from your 25-year-old self, what would you tell him today? And what would you put on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see? So let's start with your company.
1: Our our approach is, is, is that we want to attract and retain great people and talented, passionate people about what we do, because what we do is not easy, and it's also not for the faint of heart. So we need people who are thoughtful and passionate and think beyond themselves individually and think beyond themselves as a company. Our company's philosophy really is that we try to do great work inside neighborhoods, and we become part of that neighborhood. And so if you look at up and down, 90% of the people that work here are people that we worked with before from different, different positions. And we just fell in love with them as people. And they fell in love with us as people. And that's, the, that's where it begins and that's where it ends. It's about the people. It's about, it's not about the bricks and the mortar. It's about the, the culture and the types of people we're able to attract and people who really believe in teamwork. No one person does everything and no one person does only one thing. So it's like the Volvo approach to building a car. We're all building it together. We're all touching each component of it. And so it takes someone who can think beyond just their their narrow focus. So we don't hire people just to be construction people. We don't hire people just to be Accountants, we don't hire people to be just leasing. We're all trying to create this this place. That really makes it more fun, makes it more interesting, makes the dynamic great. Right? Ultimately, my goal is to, you know, find leadership outside that stock. So we've already started raising people in, as partners. These people are participating in the project financially. It's not just working on it, they're actually owners and they care. And they care because they see it as a long-term opportunity, they get a chance to create, to use this platform and move it to the next level. When the three of us started, it was an opportunity for us to start something, to take what we knew about real estate and try to create some wealth, but also to create some experience. And to, to Armin's credit, who's now retired, to Todd's credit, who's thinking about it in a few years, to my credit, who's thinking, we want to leave the legacy of people who have that same belief system that we had, go to the community meeting intently and work with people who are not necessarily in favor of development or afraid of development. And how do we bring them along? And we get brought along with them. And that's the kind of, you can't, you can't teach that. You have to find the people that have that.
0: So completely win-win. Let's say I'm an interviewee and what would you look for, me as, a, as an interviewee coming to your firm, what what characteristics do you want to, to look for from a, from a prospective employee?
1: Number one is is passion, passion of why you want to do this. What do you see? What do you want? What's your vision? What do you want to bring to the conversation? Don't wait ten years to find that passion. That passion needs to be kind of brought today. My advice to people coming out who are in college or in right. studying is come, come to the table with some, some expertise, it, be it, be it financial, be it construction, be it leasing, be it whatever, bring something that you can, you feel that you can bring to the conversation early on. If it's urban planning, if it's even if you're an English major and you're a great writer and a great communicator, right. bring something that sets you apart from everyone else. We can teach you real estate. Real estate's not, you're not born with knowledge of real estate. It's not rocket science either. It's not rocket science. And you know, it's interesting. Everybody talks about all these new things we're doing with vertically integrating things. And I was in in Jerusalem and all the old city is 2000 years ago was exactly that people lived on top of shops. Mm -hmm. We haven't been, human beings haven't truly evolved much farther from those needs. And and we're just using different technology maybe to, to do it, but, but this is all old science. And so we, that can be taught to you, but your passion, your sense of responsibility, your sense of being able to observe others, because part of what we do in retail is actually observe habits. We're observing what the marketplace does. Right. And then we try to tailor make what we are doing to fit the marketplace. We're not asking the marketplace to adapt to us. We need to adapt to the marketplace, and we know from retail retail background, those who don't move with the market to the customers' needs does it at their own peril. And I think that's the same thing with every business class. With office, you're seeing more and more amenities being driven into office. You're seeing you know residential, the marketplace is telling us, and we need to listen. So I want people who are willing to observe. And listen and not go with their binders on, thinking that they had their they right. have the knowledge because they're gonna run into a wall. So an
0: open life. mindset is what you're saying. Yeah. Very important. what you're looking for. Okay. So if, if you're looking at your twenty-five-year-old self, what would you tell him today?
1: No, if I had any regrets, I wish I started a little bit earlier on the development side. I always saw it in needing to be capital heavy or needed to be that I wasn't really quite ready yet. And to be honest with you, I wish I started, you know, I started in my 30s, but I wish I started even earlier. Take the chances when you're young and you don't have kids yet. That's the time to take the chances. Once you're, you know, fully established and you have kids, you have other mouths to feed, you know, the, you can't uh, take, the risk. take as many risks as, as you would. I wish I started a, a little bit earlier and had a little bit more confidence in myself to be able to solve those
0: things and figure those things out. So you would say, have confidence, go for it. Go for it. Make it happen.
1: You get one life, yeah. go love it, go enjoy exactly. it. I tell my kids, whatever you do, go in full in. Be full. Be fully there. Because in this world, you're not rewarded for what you know, you're rewarded for what you do. And be productive and do, and no matter what it is, be in the
0: moment, be there, be in the place. So you didn't talk about your, your family, but maybe briefly you could tell me Sure. Children,
1: I have. I've been married to my wife for 33 years. We met in Boston University. We got married. Oh, really? uh, game one of the World Series, uh, <laughs> Boston Red <laughs> Sox against the Mets. I've, half half the fa- half the audience was from New York, and the other half was from uh, Boston. Some of us from DC, but we had New York roots. So it was a really interesting wedding. She's from Lowell, Mass. Great. You know, working town up in Boston area. We have three kids. Our oldest is uh, 29, who's a uh, has her master's in social work, and she's out in Pittsburgh, going into troubled homes, into broken homes, and helping children wow. find their way. So she's an incredible angel. Our next daughter, Marissa, is 26. She's at L- in LA, working for Fifth Third National Bank. She's a principal there. She's just you know, incredibly hardworking, thoughtful. Real estate? Uh, no, actually, I think she thinks real estate's a little bit too boring. She's um her loans are, and what she does is uh, movie studios and intellectual oh, properties, and so she's, you know, hey, I'm off to go see Disney, or hey, I'm off to see Sony. But loves the entertainment side. I think she loves the excitement, and the energy of it. I don't know, if that's forever, but she's. To that credit, to her credit, she's in the moment, and she's just doing incredibly well. And then our youngest is um, Ben. He's 21, and he's finishing up in Indiana, and he's focused on marketing
0: and uh, computer science. I think so, he could uh, join the uh, roadside development team someday. You know, possibly.
1: I, I think any one of them could, to be honest with you. I think they all have. They all bring some unique skills and, and knowledge to it. But... My wife, Lisa, and I, our, our approach is, look, we, we have, we found what we wanted to do. It's their lives. And it's your life. And you go find what you want to do. and what I look at my children. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, when they were looking for colleges, I said, look, you know, I got to choose. I got to go where I wanted My parents gave me that freedom. We want to give you the same. So it's, it's really, once they take ownership of their own lives, it's fantastic. Yeah, it really is, and they grow and and they bring so much more to the table. So, look, real estate—hopefully, God willing—will always be in their lives because it's the goal is to grow, build these things that are legacy-oriented for them. But to me, it's the giving them the the ability to to go make what they want to make,
0: and do what they want to do. So, Richard, if you're if you've had a, the opportunity to put a billboard, a very large billboard that. that hundreds of thousands of people would see on the Capitol Beltway, what would it say?
1: I think it would say, think beyond yourself. Be in the moment, think beyond yourself and pay attention. This democracy that we're experiencing right now is at risk because too many people think inward and think about their narrow interests and don't think about how important everyone else is in our society. So I think Thinking beyond yourself and thinking of others and paying attention is annoying.
0: Richard, thank you very much for your time today. Pleasure. And this was uh, unbelievable good. I right. appreciate it very much. Thank, thank you. you.